This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Do you live in truth? How authentic are you? How genuine? Are you true to yourself? Well, that determines how you deal with your path on this gravel road of life, especially as it relates to sex and health. And I am going to address that amongst other subjects here on the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about health, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, 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 even sexual, uncovering what lies beneath the sheets. Good evening. I'm Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, author of the book Sex and Health, a sexual health educator, blogger, clinician, TEDx speaker, and your resource to help start that conversation, answer your questions, and help you live life to the fullest. I have a passion for up-to-date and accurate health information to guide you so that your life is the best it can be. I make no innuendos, no judgments, and certainly no apologies. Just fearless, straight-up nurse talk. Hopefully it will be illuminating, enlightening, and fun. So please stay with me. Do put the kitties to bed, please, as listener discretion is advised. Remember, we're going beneath the covers. And a gentle reminder that if you do have any health issues, this program serves only as a guide. So please do discuss any medical issues with your doctor. Now that you've got the kids into bed, grab your wine, your lover, if you've got one, and let's talk. But don't grab too much wine, especially if you're a mom. We're talking about being a sober parent in this wine mom culture we have. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Are you trying to deal with some of the stresses of your children, balancing it all, working inside and outside of the home, and you've turned a little bit too off into the bottle? Well... We're going to talk about what it's like to be a sober parent in this day and age. Also going to be talking about intimacy tonight. You know, I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice who see me alone, especially after they've come with their partner, their husband, their lover, because sometimes they actually can't be open and honest and say things in front of this person that they may have been sleeping with, having intimate relations with for decades. And so they have difficulty with their intimacy with the partner, and that can be one of the problems in the relationship. They're not comfortable in truth or in authenticity. So what is this? What is this intimacy without responsibility? I'm going to be talking about that tonight. Also, everybody always wants to know, how much sex should we be having? Our neighbors are having it this many times. They're probably not telling you the truth. Uh, Or I'm having an affair with a man who's not having sex in his marriage. (laughs) Maybe he's not telling you the truth either. Or you're disappointed to learn that the guy you were having sex with is actually having sex with somebody else. So how much sex should you be having in your relationship? And what does age have to do with it? Well, it turns out a fair bet. I'm going to be discussing that tonight as well. As I said, many couples come to see me because they are in sexless marriages. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. It's actually, I'm I'm afraid, becoming a bit more of the norm. I exaggerate there. A little hyperbole never hurt anybody. Uh, sometimes they're in sexless marriages, but there's been an increase in the sexual desire, if that has been the problem, because they're trying to have another child. The desire to have a baby will increase a woman's sexual desire as much as wine will, quite frankly. But I hear from so many couples in sexless marriages 
that the sex stopped after the baby was born. Or they'll say, sex stopped once the kids came along. Ever wonder why so many men cheat right after the baby is born? Some of the reasons might surprise you. I was surprised, and I'm applying some of this in my clinical practice as well. And it's important for you to know this information because a lot of it you can ward off. Like, what does your mother say about your partner? Turns out that has something to do with things. Anyway, also going to be talking about uh, breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is controversial. Uh, Many women struggle with breastfeeding issues. There can be everything from mastitis to poor latch. It actually can begin with poor latch. The expectation is that you're not a great mom if you don't breastfeed. Women put pressure on other women to breastfeed. There can be so many problems. Mastitis can come with infection and high temperatures and uh, nausea, vomiting, and yeah, dare I say, on the radio, diarrhea. I just said it. You can feel awful. It can actually make you want to give up. Also, women can feel less than adequate while they're breastfeeding because they're not able to breastfeed as well as their sister did or as well as their mother did or as well as their neighbor did. We're always comparing ourselves to other people and some people need that affirmation. There, there are many people in the world who can just say, I don't care. I don't care what they say. And uh, I'm going to be reviewing some of the emails that I've had to say, I don't care what they say. Um, but you know what? A lot of women are insecure at this time in their life. They want to do everything for their baby and they want to care so well for the baby and they feel inadequate when they can't properly feed their baby. And, and that can be problematic. It can also have an impact on their mental and emotional health. So I came across a study, which I feel is very important, that women who feel, because econo- economy and economics, econ- economics, economy and economics, say that three times fast, has a role here, has a role with breastfeeding, which might surprise you. So did you know that women, moms, who feel food insecure, and that means they don't feel confident that they can put enough food on the table. So moms who feel food insecure breastfeed their babies for half the length of time as those who don't. This is counterintuitive, and it certainly has some economic implications. And one would think that you would breastfeed as long as you possibly could, regardless of your circumstances, especially if you had economic issues or, or problems with cash flow. And that apparently, according to this study, is not the case. So I'm going to delve into that a little bit. And a lot of women choose to breastfeed for a number of reasons. And one of them, them can be true economy for them. And it's, it's inexpensive. It's convenient. It's healthy for your baby. But it doesn't mean that formula is bad either. But, you know, women would have, be having to purchase formula. But, you know, they say breast is best. But I say, yeah, breast is best. But formula is fine, especially if it is going to impact the health of you or your baby. A baby can become failure to thrive if they are not properly fed Uh, whether that be breast milk or formula. So certainly consider that. And also uh, this this whole judgment thing in life, it really affects how we live. I've heard from men and women in particular uh, jobs in the world 
that uh, that you wouldn't think of, but they seem to be associated with jobs that are um, commission-based. And so they're always comparing themselves against somebody else within that arena. And and that can impact how a person feels about themselves. So self-esteem is really important in self-confidence. And, and what defines success for you? And all of this applies to so much in our lives. I'm also going to be taking your emails, reading your emails. I take your emails, so feel free to email me anytime at nursetalk at hotmail.com. That's nursetalk at hotmail.com, N-U-R-S-E-T-A-L-K at hotmail.com. And if I got some doozies from you, and they involve martyrdom and embittered women. <laughs> I don't think men really become embittered. Anyway, um, and some interesting stuff from around the world about how people's lives, especially their their sex and relationships are going around the world. We may not be so bad here in Canada, especially as it relates to Sweden. So stay with me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is always my pleasure to be here with you. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate that. Talking about my favorite subjects, health and love and relationships and, of course, sex. Um, But right now I want to talk about another subject, about alcohol consumption. I work in the addiction field and uh, I see that uh, I see the effects of the opioid crisis, especially on relationships and families. In fact, I have a patient in my clinical practice who, for anonymity's sake, I don't even want to say just how many children she has, but she has a lot more than the average mother these days. And she has been in a relationship with the father of these children for about 10 years. He is an addict. He is addicted to heroin. He has overdosed three times. She has stood, sat, and cried by his bedside three too many times, far too many times for a young mother who is trying to raise children in this world. It's extremely difficult for her. She wonders when he will reach rock bottom. It has such a tremendously negative impact on her life. She doesn't know what to do. She also contracted a number of sexually transmitted infections over the years, two while she was pregnant. She remains with this man, the father of her children, for a number of reasons. And we remain in relationships with people who have addiction, in part because addiction is a disease. We, we're, we never give up hope. And if, without hope, what do you have? I also have another couple in my clinical practice where, well, first I want to say we kind of expect that men are more likely to have the addiction. Men are more likely to be the drinkers, for example. We see more men in prison for violent crimes, and certainly addiction and alcohol are associated with uh, more crashes, more violence, uh, more problems in life. But what about when it's the woman? I have a couple in my clinical practice where she um, has a problem with alcohol. Women actually get more flack for being the one with addiction. When women do wrong in society, if you will, they actually get greater sentences, uh, and society as a whole is harder on them in general. 
And life can be hard, especially for women. So this one other mom that I know who has a problem with drinking, she has a set of twins and a singleton. And she found that coping with the stressors of parenting, being the perfect parent, being the best parent, comparing herself to her friends, especially on Facebook, where all of those children seem so darn perfect with all of her friends' posts and hers aren't. And also with financial issues, which can change after you've been married and and have a baby. And of course, depending on where you live and what stage you are at in life. So if you're going to buy a house, that may uh, put increased demands on you. If you're not a great uh, financial manager, not a lot of people are. Two of the biggest problems in relationship, finances and sex, and one can harm the other. But this particular woman had a problem with alcohol where she was hiding in closets. She was hiding alcohol around her house. Her husband was suspecting, but he couldn't quite put his finger on it. What was, what was wrong with her? What was, what was the problem? The kids weren't getting cared for. House was a mess. She seemed to be uh, leaning toward depression. Uh, There were things that just didn't make sense. He couldn't talk to her. He couldn't ask her how she felt about something. If they, how, in fact, he wanted to plan for retirement and she just couldn't even discuss it and she would just get so angry and, and things would escalate and get out of control. And then finally, after saying a most horrific thing to her husband, she realized uh, she may have a problem with drinking. A friend of hers had come over and she drank a bottle of wine while the friend drank nothing. And it was that moment that she realized there's something wrong here. Or there could be something wrong here. Perhaps I have a problem with alcohol. Perhaps it's not normal that I'm in closets, which she thought it was normal to be in closets with her bottle of wine, letting the kids scream outside in the family room as she consumed that to numb her pain. It's not been uncommon historically that women's feelings have been quashed by things like tranquilizers and other such chemical substances. So there have been chemical straight jackets on women for a number of decades because, of course, we're all hysterical, and that's the only way to deal with us. Um, But women have feelings, and it's the ability to express our feelings that is so critical and vital, especially as we raise our young children. Drinking is on the rise in North America, especially for women, along with minorities and older adults. More North Americans are drinking alcohol, and a growing number of them are drinking to a point that it's dangerous, according to a study that was published in the JAMA Psychiatry uh, recently. And it examined how drinking patterns changed between 2002 and 2013, and it was in-person surveys of tens of thousands of U.S. adults. And it was found that drinking in general rose substantially and problem drinking by an even greater percentage. And women, racial minorities, older adults, and the poor saw particularly high spikes. And, you know, I have to say, I sometimes see on Facebook and I see moms and their their children are underfoot, seemingly looking perfect. And the mom is, you know, it might be two in the afternoon and and the mom is, you know, creating a concoction of a cocktail with the perception that it's all fun and good and games and wonderful and and that, you know, don't we need to drink in order to raise these children? But it's fabulous that we are. So we get all these messages on mugs and, and uh, you know, different banners that come along saying, you know, uh, the only way is the Chardonnay way or, you know, implying that drinking is um, is good for you. It's It's fun and it's healthy and it doesn't have any negative effects. But high-risk drinking 
um, does have negative effects. And high-risk drinking in this particular study referred to women drinking four or more drinks in a day. You know, depending on a woman's size, that can be a fair bit. Or men drinking five or more drinks in a day. And women actually absorb alcohol differently than men do. Um, And so this is done weekly. This is done repeatedly. And the high-risk drinking in this study rose by close to 30%. Amongst women, it rose about 58%. And amongst older, older adults, 65%. This is significant. The study also looked at both alcohol abuse, which is drinking to the point where it causes recurrent and significant problems in your life, or alcohol dependence, which is in part the inability to stop drinking. Can you stop drinking? You hear about a lot of people at the beginning of the year saying, I'm, I'm not drinking for the month, or some people drink for the first six months and don't drink for the second six months. They can still have problems. They have way more problems in the second six months when they start drinking again, when they resume it. But it it gives people a false message that I'm okay, I can stop, I don't have any problems. But you have to look at every domain of a person's life, finances, professional, relationships, family issues, raising children. So there are different domains in people's lives, sexual domain. Um, And so drinking can uh, impact that. So problems with alcohol increased by nearly 50% according to this study. And alcohol abuse and dependence on it increased by 83.7% amongst women. So this is a a significant issue. And there's a gender gap that is narrowing for women in in this particular study. And and we're seeing that as well. And, And it is that men are still more likely to be the problem drinkers, but women are catching up. And that is dangerous because women are running the households. Women are running the healthcare. Women are largely still the ones in the home responsible for the children. And there's, you know, this is such an important issue because you are teaching your children how to deal with problems in life. And so if you are teaching them that it's okay if you have a problem to take a drink. And I hear a lot of people saying, I can't cope, I'm stressed, I'm nervous, so you know, I had to go home and have a glass of wine. They're having wine earlier, they're having wine before dinner, with dinner, after dinner. And so the last person to know they have a problem with drinking is the person itself. But our culture is, uh, it's, a, it's a mom wine culture. It's a popular parenting culture that doesn't have much room for sober folks. And really, that's the best way to to raise children. Um, you know, it, and dealing with women's issues with emotional health through a chemical straitjacket is never good. And, you know, as I said, we've had tranquilizers in the past, mothers, little helpers. It sends women the wrong message that their emotions need to be squelched and not addressed. Well, I say address your emotions. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show, Maureen McGrath, hosting this program for you. Always my pleasure to be here with you, and thank you so much for being with me, talking about all of these subjects that affect our lives intimately, and we're talking about intimacy right now. If you're just joining me, we're finishing up with uh, alcohol consumption and women, in particular moms today, and I, I, I want to continue that conversation, continue that dialogue Um, in upcoming shows. I think it's an important aspect because I think it relates to repression of feelings or living true to yourself or being authentic or feeling okay about yourself. And so this next subject that we're going to be talking about, which is really about 
intimacy without responsibility. In my clinical practice, I see a lot of couples present initially. They have problems in their relationship. It is typically around a sexless marriage, an oxymoron, um, or less than satisfying sex. They don't even come in for that much, for that, that much, I should say. They come in way more because they're not having sex. One person in the relationship doesn't desire sex as much as the other one. And to be honest with you, desire discrepancy is like death and taxes. You got to expect it. You know, rarely are you going to have two people that have the same horniness quotient uh, for, the, in, for their entire lives. Because guess what? Life happens. Surgery, depression, financial issues, stress, a new job, an old job. You know, so men want more sex when they're stressed. Last thing women want when they're stressed is sex. Um, you know, these are the people in the bell curve. Of course, we're all, always going to have some outliers there. As you know, in life, we have lots of outliers. But so I see so many people that come into my clinical practice and they have been together for a long time or not, you know, maybe four years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I think that's probably around like the average highest uh, that I see. Uh, women live a bit longer, so then they come in on their own or, you know, divorced people come in as well. They don't want to make the same mistake that they made in their previous marriages or marriage, previous marriage or marriages. Some Lately, I've had a few people in my clinical practice who have said to me, amongst my friends, I'm like the top married person. I've married, this is my fourth one. Or um, I'm, I hold the record for the most marriages in my family. And, um, you know, on some level, it takes a lot of courage for that because it takes some, some people wouldn't leave a very toxic marriage or relationship. They're going to stick it out no matter what it does to them. And I've got an email that I'm going to read to you a little bit later as to about a woman who stuck it out. She's just so embittered. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can breathe her embitteredness. You know what? Martyrdom never works, but um, we'll get to that a little bit. But, you know, I see these couples, they come into my clinical practice and typically they come in together Oftentimes, one will just come in, they're so frustrated, they'll come in on their own, and what do they do, and how do they even address the subject with their partner? They can't even talk about it because the partner gets so angry. But you know what? Let's stick with the couple that comes in together, and they want to talk about the issue that's going on in the marriage. Typically, it is a desired discrepancy. It can happen to a man. It can happen to a woman. I see probably 60% these days that are where the woman has no low sexual desire for whatever reason. And about 40% that where the man does not want to have sex and has low sexual desire or low sexual interest for whatever reason that is. So it can happen either way. It can also happen in same-sex relationships. And you know what? A big part of it is life, where you are on this journey. And you know what? As the Buddhists say, you're exactly where you want to be. So I think even coming into uh, counseling or coming into education or to, to learn or hear about um Things like the female sexual response cycle or how stress impacts a relationship or uh, those, uh, you know, unhealthy ideas we have around sex that it might be dirty, that type of a thing. Um, you know, there to learn, to unlearn those things that have been embedded in us is, is really important. I, I thought this was really sweet. I had a couple who were celebrating their five-year wedding anniversary. And guess where they were? They were in my clinical practice. <laughs> I said, what a gift you've given to yourself. You know, that's what therapy is. It is a gift you give to yourself. And especially if you have feelings that are repressed or you feel like you can't talk to your partner for whatever reason that is. There's a number of different reasons that um, that 
affects that. And but what's common and and it's okay. It's there's no problem with it because I the the goal with any type of education or advising or counseling or therapy is that you know you will come out of these patterns that you'll feel more comfortable that you will be responsible for your intimacy. And and so what I see it's a big long lead up to to what I see. Uh, we are you know, we're getting there with the plateau. We're almost there, almost there. Um, anyway, what I see is they they come in together and they talk about it together. And you know it's really interesting to see how people communicate with one another. And and then I I know this based on my experience. I know that. Uh, couples, you know, one part of the couple, one spouse or one partner, whatever, can't be fully authentic with the other person. They cannot fully express everything they feel in front of someone they may have been lying next to for 10, 15, 20 years that they may be married to. They may be walking down this pathway. And it's not necessarily something from their past like well, it could be that they maybe had gone outside of the relationship or so easy to cheat today that they maybe have gone online and um, sought sex, um, which is which is which is very uncommon, very common, sorry, and very easy to do today. Um, but it may be something about not feeling vulnerable, fully vulnerable or being able to. I uh, ever get to being able to sext with your partner, for example, because or or after a a woman has had a baby. A lot of guys feel like I can't say this, but I don't see her as a sexy, beautiful woman anymore. If I ever did, sometimes they think I thought she'd be a good mom, and you know she's smart and she can balance a checkbook, and she comes from a good family, and she ticks all the boxes. But you know, I, I really don't find her as uh, that sexy. And I think I could have done better, but I, you know, but I like her, but I don't really want to say that. And you know, and they, they, all these sort of mixed up feelings and they, or they get into the same situation that they were in with their previous marriage because they never got any therapy in between. And so they rebound. I actually even had a guy who was, I think it's his second marriage and he was going from his second to his third and he'd already started a relationship. And, and I said, you know, don't get into another relationship until, you know, we kind of unravel some of these patterns and why you're attracting this type of a person. And he said, I already did. <laughs> Anyway, um, I rest my case. Uh, so this, so this is intimacy without responsibility, and it's difficulty speaking your truth to the one you love. You may censor your true feelings, so you do not hurt the partner. We don't want to hurt anyone. We're human beings. We are loving. We're nurturing. We we want to be good. You know that's human nature. But in the presence of others, we sometimes find it hard to be authentic. Yet, you know, people are fine being authentic with me because I, I will never tell anything. And even, I'm, I must say this little disclaimer here, even when I read your emails or I tell you a story, I will withhold or change information so that anonymity uh, is the cornerstone of the, of the story, but the sentiment of the story remains. Um, you know, when, we, when we're not responsible for our intimacy, we end up hiding not only our pain, our truth or our love, but our joys as well. And the joy is so important. It can be challenging to be in relationships with others and stay true to ourselves rather than being enmeshed with or feeling abandoned by the other person. So we, it's hard to let go of wanting to, you know, save or fix somebody else, especially if we're not being true to ourselves or we're, or, you know, just taking care of ourselves. So, it's it's important to identify the roles that you play in your relationship and set 
personal boundaries within that relationship. And so having intimacy without responsibility is, it actually takes away the freedom that you have within the relationship. And so you want to be responsible for that so that you can move closer to not only self-care, because you have to be able to say, listen, I'm not, uh, this isn't good for me. I don't like this. I'm not comfortable doing that. Or I'm comfortable doing that. Or I want to do this. I want to explore more or whatever. So you're not being true to yourself. And when we truly take care of our own issues of what we're embarrassed about or what we find challenging in life, that's when we begin to heal. So you want to practice that art and skill of total freedom in a relationship and being open and being vulnerable, being clear about your conscious and unconscious games that you play in your own head. You want to take care of yourself. Self-care is so important. You want to be able to reflect in this busy day and age. You want to sit down and do nothing for an hour. No, not take a bath, not drink a glass of wine, not drink, read a book, not ride a motorcycle or go for a run. No, sit down, do nothing. Speak your truth. Embrace your feelings. Do your wound reenactment. Get in touch with what has hurt you in the past. Take responsibility. Don't blame anybody else and let love in. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It is my pleasure to be here with you this evening and every other evening. And thank you so much for being here with me. When I go to a cocktail party or a dinner party or an event or anything, especially when there are men there, (laughs) which is most dinner parties and cocktail parties, not so much the events. I tend to um, go to women's leadership events. Uh, But I did go to an event. I spoke at an event one time, and I actually thought it was all women, and it was like 300 men and 10 women. Nonetheless, the men will approach me once they hear of my work, the work that I do, my, my trade, if you will. It's not a trade. Um, My craft, that was the word I was looking for. Ah, I'm glad it came back to me. Um, And they'll, you know, oh, so uh, you're in the the sex field. And then they, of course, they want to um, let me know right away that there's no problem with their sex life. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Do you think I'd buy that? Not for a second. But they have a curiosity about other people's sex lives because, you know, they just want to make sure they're on track and uh, they are, uh, you know, at least uh, above or they don't want to be below. They want to be on top on this one. So after telling me how great their sex life is, um, they want to know, you know, just one question. What's that burning question they have? (laughs) It's always the same. Well, how much how much sex is normal? How much sex should somebody be having? What do you think? <laughs> I get asked that question so often. Uh, you know, but the answer isn't easy, even for a sexpert, because it depends. It all depends on so many things, on life circumstances, on health, on your background, your education, your vulnerability, your desires, your exploratory capacity. There's a new one. Your desire to explore and have fun and and try new things in and outside of the bedroom. Your ability to resolve conflict in a relationship, where you are in your life, how you feel about your partner, what's going on at work or online. So there's lots of different things that 
may impact our frequency, sexual frequency. You know, the desire discrepancy quotient that you have between you and your partner. And there's always a desire discrepancy. So all of those things come into play, but something you may not think of, except for the fact that everybody says, oh, old people don't have sex. Well, that's not true. Old people are having sex all the time. In fact, they might be having more sex than you and I. Way more uh, than you. (laughs) Kidding. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, this is a fun subject, you got to admit. So the Kinsey Institute, who is responsible for groundbreaking sex research in the 50s, they were they were partners in research, they were business partners, and they were lovers as well. And they did fabulous female sexual response research way back when, uh, that linear response model, which is desire, arousal, excitement, lubrication, plateau, orgasm. So they, they're responsible for that. Um, but they conducted a study as to how often you should have sex according to how old you are. So for those people that are 18 to 29 years of age, those folks should be having sex about 112 times a year on average. So that's equal to almost two times a week. So, you know, you might think young people are having way more sex, but often not. The higher low sexual desire numbers are women between the ages of 24 and 44, according to the preside study. So, uh, and also there's so many distractions for people, especially technology has really, uh, uh, increased the loneliness factor or, you know, you go into a restaurant and you see people out together and they're both on their phones and it's just like, wow. Anyway, you want to have sex with your phones? That's coming probably. And you know what, but they're having intimate relationships with their phones, with Instagram, with Snapchat, with LinkedIn, with all of them. Uh, So you've got to think about that. And really, you need to have time, a break time from from your phone and from technology because you don't want technology to be your lover. The more you're online, the more of a risk of you meeting somebody online or uh, actually getting away from your own relationship, your own intimate relationship. So how about for 30 to 39-year-olds? So those people are a little older. So you know what? These are the, this is the time you're building a family. Typically, you're buying a house, you're adding a mortgage to your life, you're dealing with in-laws and all that, trying to trying to carve a place out in life for yourself, building your career, um, or starting out on your career anyway. Um, so these folks, um, 86 times a year on average seems to be um, about, because sex can be a hit and miss at this time of life. So for people who are really working on their careers, maybe the kids are a little bit older, um, the middle-aged couple, the the 40 plus uh, to 50 years of age. How's this for a number? 69 times a year, according to the Kinsey Institute. You can remember that, okay? So that's sex a little bit more than once a week, right? So you might still be in the thick of things if you're in your 40s with, you know, your kids, if you if you delayed having babies, you know, waited till your late 30s, early 40s to have babies, you know, you're, you're still, you know, deep in diapers. And so sex may be less frequent. It may not be the first thing on your mind. You may be putting your children ahead of your, the intimate relationship um, that is, that is your life, that is of your life, that is related to your life. So, Oh, by the way, this is 69 times with the person that you're in the relationship with, okay? Just to be clear, um, you know how the monogamy is uh, is controversial these days as well. So, you know, it's important uh, at these busy times of life that you 
pay attention to the intimacy in your life. The honeymoon period after the marriage may not last very long. Uh, you may start uh, having conflict in your relationship, and you bring those issues to the relationship about your conflict resolution style, you know, your family background, um, you know, how your parents feel about the person that you married. And you know what? They may feel great about the person you married. They may feel better about the person you married than you do. And that's why you married them. And so sometimes people get married for the wrong reasons. And I don't think there's any amount of education or counseling or therapy that can make somebody want to have sex with somebody that they actually never really wanted to get married for the right reasons for. Does that make sense? Uh, So, you know, oftentimes people come into counseling or therapy and they're just not having the amount of sex that they should according to these ages, according to the Kinsey research. And it's like, what do I do to get my sexual desire up? You know, well, it might be that you have to replace the person that you're with. Um, But a lot of people don't do that, and that's why they go outside of the relationship. But, you know, for those of you who love the person, are physically attracted to the person, want to remain in in the marriage, in the relationship, love that person, and you feel that you're not doing your part, not having as much sex as you ought to be, or you feel is healthy for the relationship, or your partner is complaining about it, and, you know, their complaints warrant merit, um, you know, you have to think about that. And so responsive desire, just do it, you know, is goes a long way. It's really important because if you just do it and you enjoy it and you, then you realize when you're done, hey, why didn't I do that this morning? You know, you might be in good hands. So that's, that's good advice. Uh, but the bottom line is you don't have to stick to these numbers. You can have sex way more often than you think. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunny Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.